This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program, I want to think with you about fidelity in marriage, a new ethic, that's a question. Sexual scandals seem to abound right now in our culture, politicians, media leaders, former presidents, as well as the normal sexual perversion emanating from Hollywood. Are our expectations about fidelity in marriage too high and, in effect, unrealistic? Will the same expectation of basic fidelity in marriage now be extended to same-sex marriages? Since our culture is now accommodating itself to same-sex marriage, witness the recent legislation from the state of New York, will our culture now change the ethical expectations of marital fidelity? Dan Savage, America's leading sex advice columnist for 20 years, has been articulating a sexual ethic that challenges the ethic of fidelity in marriage. In his weekly column, which is called In Savage Love, he criticizes the obsession of America with fidelity in marriage. In its place, Savage calls for what writer Mark Oppenheimer calls the American gay male model of sexuality. After that, community's tolerance for pornography, fetishes, and a variety of partnered arrangements from strict monogamy to wide openness. Oppenheimer observes that, quote, Savage believes monogamy is right for many couples, but he believes that our discourse about it and about sexuality more generally is dishonest. Some people, he argues, need more than one partner, just as some people need flirting, others need to be whipped, others need lovers of both sexes, all perversions in my opinion. But he goes on, we can't help our urges. And we should not lie to our partners about them. In some marriages, talking honestly about our needs will forestall or obviate affairs. In other marriages, the conversation may lead to an affair, but with permission. In both cases, honesty is the best policy. Close that long quote. Among other things, Savage is also a committed advocate of same-sex marriage. So, his support of a new ethic of marriage is dangerous. For the gay lifestyle is stereotyped as compulsively promiscuous. Nonetheless, Savage ardently defends his position. He believes that a more flexible attitude within marriage may be what the straight community needs. Oppenheimer writes that treating monogamy rather than honesty or joy or humor as the main indicator of a successful marriage gives people unrealistic expectations of themselves and of their partners. And that, Savage says, destroys more families than it saves. As I mentioned, Savage has been writing his column, now syndicated in more than 50 newspapers across the United States since 1991. Raised in Chicago in a Catholic family, he is married to Terry Miller. It's a same-sex marriage. He and his husband adopted a son, DJ, as an infant. And he and his partner, Terry Miller, had published a video project entitling it, It Gets Better a manifesto to gay youth to tough it out, because with all the bullying and ostracism that still exists for gay guys, life will be better. Gay marriages are possible, and you can be happy, he argues in that video. Out of his own life as a gay man, 
Dan Savage has forged his new sexual ethic, which is at the core of his newspaper column. At bottom, he believes that we need a more realistic sexual ethic that would prize honesty, a little flexibility, and when necessary, forgiveness over absolute monogamy. In his own same-sex marriage, Savage and Miller practice what they call monogamish, allowing occasional infidelities, which they are honest about. According to Oppenheimer, during the interview he had with them, Savage and Miller admitted to nine such affairs in their relationship. Savage offers somewhat humorously his dictum for marriage, G-G-G, good, giving, and game. By game, he means skilled, generous, and up for anything. Savage writes, the point is that people, particularly those who value monogamy, need to understand why being monogamous is so much harder than they've been led to believe. For that reason, Savage believes that the male gay community might be able to show America the way to a new sexual ethic that is honest and forgiving and therefore can make room for certain infidelities in marriage. The goal was to keep the marriage together, almost at any cost, he argues. Savage implores us to know the people we marry and to know ourselves and to therefore plan accordingly. As I read this lengthy article on the new sexual ethic of Dan Savage in a recent issue of the New York Times Magazine, as I was reading, I alternated between disbelief and pity. Disbelief and shock, first of all, that such an ethic is even worthy of discussion. Pity that, as a civilization, we have come to a point where a nationally syndicated columnist can propose such an ethic. It certainly validates a dialectic I have observed many times in Western culture. What was once unthinkable becomes debatable and gradually then becomes acceptable. Well, how then should we think about Dan Savage and this new ethic of marriage that he is proposing? Several thoughts. Number one, our culture has already made the decision to accommodate to the gay lifestyle, and now it seems to same-sex marriage. New York now joins five other states, plus the District of Columbia, in recognizing same-sex marriages. Gradually, I believe, the other states will no doubt fall in line with making same-sex marriage the moral and ethical equivalent of heterosexual marriage. For that reason, one of the columnists I have grown to like, Russ Duthat, writes, quote, Over the decades ahead, these personal and political choices will gradually transform gay marriage from an idea into a culture. They'll determine the social expectations associated with gay wedlock, the gay marriage and divorce rates, the differences and similarities between gay and lesbian unions, the way marriage interacts with gay parenting, and much more beside. They will also help determine gay marriage's impact on the broader culture of matrimony in America. Close that quote. For that reason, Dan Savage's proposal for a new sexual ethic modeled on the gay community's sexual ethic is disturbing one in which infidelity is an expectation to be tolerated, accepted, and forgiven. that correctly observes that the trouble is that straight culture already experimented with exactly this kind of model, with disastrous results. 
I agree with his additional observation that institutions tend to be strongest when they make significant moral demands, weaker when they preemptively accommodate themselves to human culture, and I would add, to human sin. A successful marriage culture depends not only on a general ideal of love and commitment, but on specific promises, exclusions, and taboos. The less specific and more inclusive an institution becomes, the more likely people are to approach it casually if they enter it at all. And in my view, that is exactly where we are with marriage in Western civilization. This leads me to a second point. What then is the best foundation for a successful marriage culture? I believe strongly that it is our Creator's Word and the ideal He constructs in His creation ordinance in Genesis 1 and 2. Our Creator links the institution of marriage to two fundamental realities, gender difference and procreation. You cannot study God's ordinance in Genesis 1 and 2 and come away with any other foundation. But you must also read on into Genesis 3, one of the most depressing chapters in the entire Bible. In it, one sees the fall of the human race into sin and rebellion. We are living with those consequences now. The fallenness of humanity has produced the waves of new sexual ethics and experimentation and the ongoing challenge to God's ideal for marriage. Marriage is arguably difficult in a fallen world, but its parameters are clear. The Bible is filled with bigamous and polygamous relationships, and none of them are positive. The Bible presents, often in graphic detail, the tragedy and ultimate dysfunction that come when one abandons God's creation ordinance. Dan Savage is proposing an ethic that is really not that new. Humanity has been experimenting with this ethic for over 5,000 years, and one cannot find any positive results of this ethic. God has spoken on the ethic of marriage, and his words are profoundly challenging, but require only one response, obedience. When we obey, he promises blessing. When we disobey, he gives us over, the words of Romans 1, 18 through 32, to our base desires and self-destructive lifestyle choices we have observed throughout the history of humanity. This is not a new sexual ethic that Dan Savage is proposing. It is a very old one, warmed over for the 21st century. It will fail just like every other one outside of God's ideal has failed. May God give us the courage to stand for his ideal of marriage, detailed for us in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let me move on now to the second perspective in our program, and I've entitled this The War Against the Girls. Mara Hivstendahl, has written a powerful and provocative book entitled Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. She demonstrates that in China, 
India, and other nations, there are many more men than women, the result of systematic campaigns against baby girls. In nature, in other words, the way God has normally done it, 105 boys are born for every 100 girls. That's a general statistic across the world. Jonathan Lass, who's written a lengthy review on Hifstendahl's book, writes, This ratio is biologically ironclad. Between 104 and 106 is the normal range, and that's as far as the natural window goes. Any other number is the result of unnatural events. However, today, when we look at India, for example, there are 112 boys for every 100 girls born. In China, the number is 121. With some towns in China, it's 150 boys to 100 girls. Why this incredibly skewed ratio? There's only one reason. Abortion. According to Vistendal, there have been 163 million sex-selective abortions over the last three decades. I'm going to repeat that statistic. According to Vistendal, there have been 163 million sex-selective abortions over the past three decades. If the label, in my judgment, modern Holocaust, does not fit that statistic, I do not know what other term would. How did this occur? She demonstrates that in the mid-1970s, amniocentesis became available in developing nations, which meant that parents could determine the sex of their baby. When amniocentesis was replaced by the cheaper and less invasive ultrasound, parents who wanted a boy could now choose to abort if the mother was pregnant with a girl. Surprisingly, at least it was to me, it was the wealthy in these civilizations, China and India, for example, that led the way. Sex selection typically starts with the urban, well-educated stratum of society. Elites are the first to gain access to this new technology, whether MRI scanners, smartphones, or ultrasound machines. Such technology, when applied to sex selection, then begins to filter down to the broader culture. A surprise to me, she demonstrates that the decision to abort girls is usually made by women, either by the mother or the mother-in-law. Amazingly, female empowerment often has produced more sex selection, not less, because in many communities, Vistendahl shows, women use their increased autonomy to select for sons, because males bring higher social status and wealth. Female power does not produce more social righteousness. It seems it produces only more decadence. Well, what are the effects of the resulting gender imbalance that sex selection by abortion has produced? Let me cite several. Number one, Vistendahl shows that there is a demonstrable connection between skewed sex ratios and violence. High sex ratios mean that a society is going to have surplus men, that is, men with no hope of marrying because there are not enough women. Such men accumulate in the lower classes where risks of violence are already elevated. And unmarried men with limited incomes tend to make trouble. In Chinese provinces where the sex ratio has spiked, a crime wave has followed. 
Today in India, she writes, the best predictor of violence and crime for any given area is not income, but sex ratio, boys to girls. Result number two. She also shows that high sex ratios mean that it is harder to secure a bride and men can find themselves buying or bidding for them. This contributes to China's astronomical household savings rate. Parents know they must save up in order to secure brides for their sons, which is becoming, as a dowry, more and more expensive. This savings rate, in turn, drives the Chinese demand for U.S. Treasury bills. Isn't that an interesting observation? Result number three. Furthermore, in such cultures, a young woman may actually become more valuable, providing income for their families or, tragically, for their pimps. Evidence now is growing that the sex ratio change is actually producing a female underclass. A small but significant group of women are ending up being stolen or sold from their homes and forced into prostitution. This is the modern sex slave trade, and Fistendahl's book demonstrates unequivocally that there is a connection between the sex ratio skewing and the sex slave trade. Number four, she also unveils a major scandal, at least I think it is, on a series of unpleasant documents from the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the United Nations, and Planned Parenthood, showing how all of these organizations pushed sex-selective abortions as a means of controlling population growth. Malcolm Potts, the 1976 medical doctor of the International Planned Parenthood Organization, stated in 1976 that early abortion is safe, effective, cheap, and potentially the easiest method to administer. This shocked me in an interview that Vistendahl had with population dumpster Paul Ehrlich, who authored the 1968 classic The Population Bomb, shows that Ehrlich still believes that sex selection is positive because it will keep families from having more and more children until they get a boy. In 1977, another Planned Parenthood official celebrated China's coercive methods of family planning, stating that persuasion and motivation are very effective in a society in which social sanctions can be applied against those who fail to cooperate in the construction of a socialist state. That is a quote from a Planned Parenthood executive. Fistendahl shows in case after case that Western population advocates hailed sex selection techniques as test case solutions to the world's population challenge. An unlikely alliance occurred between Republican cold warriors worried that population growth would fuel the spread of communism and left-wing scientists and activists who believed that abortion was necessary for both the needs of women and the future prosperity or even survival of mankind. Vistendahl powerfully contends that the American establishment began this movement, but it has now taken on a life of its own. Sex selection has spread inexorably with access to abortion and produced this grisly number of 163 million girls that have been aborted. This means that the 21st century liberal must now defend the proposition that these unborn girls were not humans and also likewise defend the proposition that abortion is a near-absolute right. 
But for me, as a Christian, this monstrous tragedy of what Hvistendal has shown is scandalous. Amazingly, unbelievably to me, Hvistendal refuses to take a position in her book of when life begins and still believes, despite all this evidence that she has uncovered, that abortion is a right. I concur with the columnist Russ Duthant that the bottom line of what she has uncovered is that these 163 million girls are not missing. The horrific nature of what she had uncovered is that these 163 million girls are dead. The truly unbelievable tale that Hvistendal tells is evidence once again of what happens when humanity tries to manipulate and control life to a predetermined end. Population control in a culture that values males will produce with the aid of technology infanticide in the form of sex selection abortions. Then the unintended consequences of that brutality will begin to unfold. And dear people, this is what we are seeing in our world today. Fistendahl shows that throughout history, the ratio of boys to girls at birth has remained equal or at about 104-106 boys to 100 girls. But over the last 30 years, that number has skewed in favor of boys, and the consequences are horrific. We not only see the death of 163 million girls, but also the devastating consequences that I have summarized in this perspective. God has established a ratio that he has maintained throughout all of history. Humanity has now upset that ratio with profound results. But if God is no longer viewed as the creator and sustainer of life, then we are now sovereign with the technology to control and manipulate our lives and our populations. How are we doing? It is abysmal. This is perhaps the greatest holocaust in human history. Done in the name of population control and supported at least at the outset by Western money and Western power brokers, including the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the United Nations, and Planned Parenthood. It has now taken on a life of its own. Collectively, the Western world should hang its head in shame. There is nothing to be proud of here. The shame and guilt should haunt the West as we see the social consequences permeating our world. Once again, when humanity tries to take the place of God, humanity fails and calamity results. When will the human race ever learn? It seems to me both of these perspectives on our program this week, the one dealing with Dan Savage's new marriage ethic and the one dealing with 163 million girls killed, selective abortions based on sex over the last 30 years, demonstrate again what happens to humanity when we abandon God's clear ethical standards. When, I repeat, will the human race ever learn? If there's ever a time for the human race to run to God, beg his forgiveness, see his grace manifested in Jesus Christ, and return to the foundational truth that he is our creator 
and our sustainer of life. The time is now. May God in His grace enable us to do so. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.